Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Many people know Bruce Lee as a martial artist and film star, but he's also a philosopher who articulated principles that apply beyond engaging in artful combat to grappling with life itself. Shannon Lee, daughter of Bruce Lee, caretaker of his legacy, and the author of Be Water, My Friend, The Teachings of Bruce Lee, unpacks those principles on today's show. We begin our conversation with what Shannon remembers of her late father and how she discovered the power of his philosophy after sinking into depression following the death of her brother, Brandon Lee. We then dive into some of the sources of Bruce Lee's philosophy, his reading habits, and what books he kept in his extensive library. Shannon shares the story behind how her father first started formulating his ideas around becoming like water, how he engaged in forms of moving meditation, and what you can learn from his journaling practice. We enter a conversation with the resilient, proactive way Bruce Lee responded to a potentially crippling back injury. It's a lot of great inspiration in this show on what should be every man's ideal, the combination of contemplation and action. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash philosophy. Shannon joins you now via clearcast.io. All right, Shannon Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So you are the daughter of Bruce Lee, and you uh, also are in charge of your father's legacy. You manage what you call the business of Bruce Lee. And recently, I think it was last year, you put out a book called be water, my friend, which is you basically synthesized your father's philosophy. A lot of people don't realize this, that Bruce Lee was a a philosopher, synthesized his philosophy, but also showed practical applications of how to put that into practice. And I'm, I'm hoping we can, in this interview discussion, talk about the sources of your father's philosophy, what it looked like big picture, and then um, how we can apply that. But before we do, let's get personal. I'm sure you get this, asked this question all the time, but you were four years old when your father died. How old, how much do you remember of your father? You know, I mean, I'm sure anyone thinking back to what they remember when they were four, and I know there are some people who like remember every single thing, but I think that's that's fairly rare. <laughs> you know, my memories are quite limited. I don't have those long form sort of visual audio memories where, you know, I'll say, oh, I remember when he walked into the room and then he said this and I, you know, all that kind of thing. But I'll tell you, and I, and I talk about this in the book and, and thank you, by the way, for, for having me on the podcast to talk about the book. The thing I really remember very vividly is the feeling of him. And it took me a really, really long time to understand that that was a memory. I, I used to kind of think I was just a little bit insane because I was like, God, I feel like I really know this person. <laughs> I feel like I know this person intimately and and in, in a strange way. And I used to just think, well, gosh, I, that just must be some strange longing that I have or or something. But it is so visceral for me. And I, it wasn't until I talked to a, another friend of mine who had lost their father at a young age and I was describing the sensation. And he said, oh yeah, I have those memories too. And I was like, memories, these are memories. <laughs> and so I have to say, even though I was very, very young, and it makes sense, right? Like, like when I start thinking about it, like as a child, especially a toddler, you, before you're even able to speak, you're feeling, you're just feeling everything around you all the time and taking it in. And so I do remember things like going to visit him on set. I remember our house in Hong Kong. My memories really start in Hong Kong. We moved there when I was three. And I remember though, what he felt like, his energy, his like just kinetic, charismatic, sparkly, intense presence. And that is something that I am so grateful for. Well, I'm hoping in our conversation, we can let our listeners get a sense of that kinetic vitality that your your father had. Mm-hmm. You describe in the book, you know, in, in your teenage years and in your early part of your 20s, you, you, know, you didn't think too much about your father's philosophy, like cerebrally. But then you had this moment in your early adulthood where you went to a dark place. You had a, a crisis, despair, depression. Mm-hmm. And it was in this moment, it, like your father's philosophy kind of hit you in a very profound way, like almost as he was, as if he was speaking to you from the beyond. And that led you to dig deep into 
his philosophy, but also making your life's work overseeing his legacy. Can you walk us through that experience and what led up to that moment? Sure. So, of course, you know, being raised in my family as I was, I was familiar with some of my father's philosophy, in particular, the more famous ones like be water my friend or using no way is way, having no limitation is limitation and those types of things. But as you say, I had never really delved deep into it or looked into it. I just kind of knew it because it was just part of my culture growing up. But then right before my 24th birthday, my brother was killed in an accident on a film set. And that was extremely traumatic. And it just plunged me into this really painful, dark place where I, you know, I, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know I had all of these horrible feelings that I didn't know what to do with. And I didn't know how to make sense of it, if that's even possible. I didn't know how I was supposed to keep going on the, the, uh, with my life. The world became very nonsensical. And I'm sure anyone who's experienced death closely knows what I'm talking about when you're just sort of in bewilderment that the world is still going on around you, like everything's fine when you yourself are clearly not fine. And it's really hard to know what to do with yourself. And for me, it really set off this bookend experience, you know, my father having died when I was four and then my brother dying right before my 24th birthday, so 20 years apart. You know, as I healed through that process, I started to see like, oh, I've been mildly depressed my whole life. It's just that with this sudden immense tragedy, I was just plummeted into such a deep well of painful depression. And I, you know, you go through, you go through a funeral, you go through memorial services, you, you have some time for a little while where you're just so bereft with grief. And then you kind of have to keep living your life. And so on the outside, I was going through the motions of living my life, but on the inside, I was still extremely in, in an extreme amount of pain. And when I would have my quiet moments, and I talk in the book about like driving in my car around LA, which we do a lot in LA, and just crying as I'm driving. And then I would arrive someplace and I'd sort of like wipe off my face and throw a smile on and hop out of the car and go about my life. And that's, that's not really living, you know, that's, that's two separate planes of existence, which is a really hard thing to maintain. And I went on this way for a couple of years and then just sort of by happenstance, I was given photocopies of all of my father's writings. <laughs> my mom was working with someone on a, on a series of books and they had made copies of all of his writings in order to go through them. And they handed them to me and said, oh, we made you a copy. We thought maybe you would like to see these. And dating myself here, but it was like three phone books worth of papers of his writings. And I just started flipping through them. And as you can imagine, a lot of them are around martial arts and technique and that sort of thing. But so many of them were about philosophy and his thoughts on life. And there were creative writing. There were all sorts of things in there. It was like a treasure trove. And as you say, I, I came across this one quote that I had never heard before, not having been a student of his writings that I am now. And I just had this sudden response as if suddenly it's like there was a little fissure, a little crack that opened up and some light got in. And all of a sudden I was like, it just hit me square in the chest. And I just thought, 
oh my gosh, there was something about this quote that it just said to me, you can be okay. You've got to work for it, but there is, there is a way to know yourself and heal yourself and move forward. And that quote, which sometimes I butcher and sometimes I don't, we'll see what happens, is the medicine for my suffering I had within me from the very beginning, but I did not take it. My ailment came from within myself, but I did not observe it until this moment. And now I see that I will never find the light unless, like the candle, I am my own fuel. And there was just something about that that said, your suffering, the way that you are suffering, is coming from within yourself, and you've got to seek the cure for that. You've got to start observing that pain and really starting to question it and really starting to seek a way through it, not to ignore it, not to deny it, but to really let it in and explore it. And, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have those like amazing sensical thoughts in that moment. It's just that the words hit me and I just thought, Oh, the medicine for my suffering. I have the medicine for my suffering. And it was like, okay, what is that? (laughs) And I just kept reading and reading and reading. And I found that the medicine was in the words and it was in me attempting to apply the words. So this is a question that I'm sure is going to be hard to answer. <laughs> so, like, your father was a philosopher besides a martial artist, but like his philosophy and yeah. his martial arts were was intertwined. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about your father that I took away from your book is that he wasn't a dogmatist, and so his philosophy was it was open, and so you really couldn't put like a, a container around it. But if you were to do that, uh, so we can grasp <laughs> it a little bit, like what, what would you call his philosophy? Like big picture, what was the aim of Bruce Lee's philosophy? To me, his philosophy is about self-actualization, which means essentially making a reality of one's truest self. Or, said another way, fulfilling your potential to the best of your ability. So, and for him, that meant, you know, as a martial artist, but also as a human being. And I think, you know, he said, everything that I've learned in life, I've learned from doing martial arts. And then later in his life, he said, you know, I'm a martial artist by choice. I'm an actor by profession, but what I'm really hoping to be is an artist of life. And so I think philosophy and and sort of like one good way to test philosophy is, is it applicable across experience? And and the fact that it was applicable to his experience of martial arts, as well as his experience of life, says to me that it is extremely useful philosophy. And what it means to self-actualize as a martial artist is one aspect. What it means to self-actualize as a human being is, is another. And I think if, if we step into the broader one, which is to actualize as a human being, then we also will actualize as a martial artist because we're attempting to fulfill our potential in every possible human way. All right. So self-actualization, and I'm hoping we can get into the details of what that looked like. Mm-hmm. But before we do, let's talk about like the, the sort of the source, the sources of your father's philosophy. I think something that a lot of people don't realize that your father was a student of philosophy. Like he literally studied philosophy in college. And then throughout his life after college, he continued to, he was a voracious reader, read all sorts of books from books about boxing and martial arts to books about positive thinking, but also those, you know, philosophical, really deep text. Based on your, you know, looking at your father's work, 
do you have an idea of some of the sources of his philosophy, like both Eastern and Western? And you know, maybe we can talk about his library a bit too, because I think some people would be interested in that as well. For sure. My father was extremely self-educated and he believed in prescriptive reading. So reading that, you know, he took upon himself in order to learn something that he wanted to know. And as you say, he studied philosophy in college. He, he didn't graduate, but he went to the University of Washington and studied philosophy for a couple of years. And the funny thing is everyone thought, well, this is weird. Why is he studying philosophy? <laughs> they thought he would go into like physical education or something having to do with physicality because he was so active and physical and so interested in how to move his body and all that sort of thing. But he was working with a, a like a guidance counselor at college to help him choose his classes. And his guidance counselor said to him, you know, you're really inquisitive. Like my my dad was one of those guys who would just ask questions all the time. Well, why this? And and what about this? And what does this mean? And what do you mean by this? And why should I do that? And what do you think about that? And he was just extremely inquisitive. And his guidance counselor said, you know, you're so curious and you ask so many questions. He said, I really think you would enjoy taking a philosophy course because philosophy is about, you know, why, why, why we do what we do and what we are living for and, and why we are living for it. And so my dad thought that was interesting. And so he signed up for some classes and he immediately fell in love with philosophy. And he really started at that time to formulate this notion that he really needed to combine philosophy with martial arts because it would explain the why of movement for him. And that that was just as important in terms of learning and nutrition in martial arts as technique. And in fact, maybe in some ways more important because it would give technique meaning. And so you know, it's funny because I'm sitting here in my office and I'm looking right now at all of the boxes and boxes and boxes of my father's books that we have right now. And just, he had thousands of books and they are underlined and annotated and maybe not every single one, but a good majority of them. And he was very influenced by Eastern philosophy, in particular, the Tao Te Ching. And he read up quite a bit on the different Eastern philosophical schools like Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism and different aspects of that he was very interested in. He also read Alan Watts and Joseph Campbell and Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti and Alan Watts were two of his favorites. And, and later in life, you know, he, he, as you mentioned, went more into also like self-help books and anything that sort of talked about, like, these are some of the thoughts around why we live. And then these are some of the tools about how to live a better and better life. And the funny thing is, is that when my mom who's five years younger than my dad, first laid eyes on my dad. It was at her high school. He had come to lecture on Eastern philosophy at her high school to some of the, uh, to the high school philosophy class. And she didn't meet him at that time, but, but she saw him in the hallways and she said, uh, all the girls were like, who is that cute guy <laughs> on campus? So, you know, my father, anything that he undertook, he undertook it to the very best of his ability, and he really wanted to do it well. So if philosophy was his jam, then he was going to 
dive fully into it and immerse himself. Yeah, that was one thing I, that impressed me about your father and his reading and, and, and his philosophy too, is that it wasn't just theoretical for him. Like he always tried to put it into action. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just contemplation, like he did that, but it was also oriented towards action as well. He didn't just read Norman Vincent Peale, like he actually did what the suggestions are in that book. Totally, 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 totally. And that's the thing that I like really try to get across in my book and about my father when I talk about him, which is he didn't just espouse philosophy, he tried to live philosophy. And he himself had a quote that said, philosophy can be the disease for which it pretends to be the cure. So, you know, I think nowadays a lot of people can go around saying great quotes or posting great quotes or they have a lot of jargon, but are they applying it? Are they really attempting to live through those words or does it just sound good? We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. 
Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, let's dig into the details of your father's philosophy and how we can put it into action. And I'm sure everyone has likely read or seen that YouTube video of Bruce Lee talking about his idea of be water. Do we know when he first started developing this concept? Yeah, so he had his big revelation about being like water when he was 17. (laughs) So early. He had this experience where he was in his martial arts class with Ip Man, and he was facing off with an opponent and he just kept getting really aggressive and trying to win. And Ipman kept trying to say to him, you know, stop trying to enforce a strategy, get out of your head. You have to follow your opponent's movements. You have to be more fluid, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you need to have more gentleness. And my dad kept trying to understand what he was saying, but being a, you know, rowdy teen who just wanted to win, he just kept getting in his head, trying to win, win, win at all costs. And finally, it man said, stop, go home, think about what I said, don't come back for a week. And my dad was like, what? (laughs) I mean, for him, martial arts was his life. He was absolutely you know, in love with it. He was practicing it all the time. And he couldn't believe he was being banished from class for a week. And so he left and he really tried during that time to understand what is he talking about? What does gentleness have to do with martial arts? What does he mean? You know, don't enforce my strategy or get it out of my head. Like, I don't understand what what he's talking about. And he got really frustrated. and, And finally he took a boat and he went out into Hong Kong Harbor And he was just sort of like bobbing around in the water, trying to think about what his teacher was telling him. And he got super frustrated and he leaned over the side of the boat and he started punching the water with all his might. And in that moment, he had an epiphany and he just stopped and he said, oh my gosh, I'm punching this water with all of my force and it is moving out of the way. It's making room for my fist. And then he thought, then he tried to grab the water. And every time he would grab it, it would just run through his fingers. And he was like, okay, this substance, which seems so soft and weak and nothing, is actually, you know, can be the strongest thing in the planet. Like, storms and it can carve through rock and it can it can do all of this stuff and yet I can't grab it. It 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 moves around me and and when I punch at it it doesn't suffer injury. It gets out of the way. And he just had this huge epiphany and then right after that he saw a bird fly over the water casting its reflection and he thought, oh, this is how my mind is supposed to be supposed to be like the reflection of the bird on the water. The water sees it, but it just lets it pass through. And that's how my emotions and my thoughts should be when I'm trying to fight and engage in combat. And it was then that he's just sort of like got this big download. And of course, being 17, he didn't like immediately go home and write down like the be water quote, but it was from that moment forward that he really started to apply this notion of fluidity and gentleness and really following the opponent and being in relationship with your opponent and all of these things. And it was, it was later, it was more in the late 60s early 70s when he really created that quote that we all know now and started you know saying it 
out loud to people all over, but but he had many writings about the nature of water, and which can be found a lot, obviously, in the Tao Te Ching and in Taoist principles as well, which are very based in the natural world. And so, and so, but that's where it all started is when he was a teenager. And I think we all can kind of intuitively understand like why you'd want to be water in a, in a, in a fight, right? It's, uh, mm. but like how do you flesh this out? Like how can you apply this idea of be water outside of martial arts? What does that look like? I mean, I, I, I talk about this in the book. I feel like a fight is actually, or a challenge, let's say is, something that we're facing all the time in our lives, you know, even if it's just like the challenge of getting up in the morning, you know, um, or greater challenges that are thrust upon us as have been for many people over this last year. I think that being like water uh, applies across the board to the experience of living because life is challenging. Even when life is good and we feel good, we are still trying to figure out how to live our most fulfilling life and how it can be better and how we can you know fulfill our purpose and all of those types of things so whether we're facing a difficult challenge or, or whether we're facing a challenge of of just trying to be even better and better we're still challenging ourselves every day and how to live the most fulfilling life or how to live a pain-free life, whatever the circumstance. And so being like water is extremely helpful because we will be faced with obstacles and learning how to be flexible, how to be fluid, how to flow with our obstacles rather than ignore them or run from them or deny them is part of being like water, being in relationship with what's going on around you as water is. It's also about being present um, to your circumstance and about being always moving forward and being unrelenting in that way. You know, water, when I talk in the book, I talk about, you know, living water, water that is in motion, even if it's a still pool of water. It's being fed from a deep source in order to stay viable and fresh, right? So my father talked about living water and he equated the notion of being like water to the notion of truly living because life is in motion all the time and we need to be in response to it like water is in response to its surroundings. It's in response to the shore, the sand, the weather, the rocks, you know, wherever it is. We also need to be in a sense of fluid readiness to be able to respond to our lives in the most sort of present way that we can. Another concept related to be like water is this idea that your father talked about of emptying the cup. What do you mean by that and how did he empty his cup? Yeah, so the the be water quote starts, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. And he used to say this all the time, the usefulness of a cup is in its emptiness. If a cup is full, you can't use it, right? So it's already in use. It's preoccupied. And he likened the cup to the mind. And when he would say, empty your mind, he would say, let go of all of your preconceived notions, all of your conclusions, your judgments, and empty that cup, make it clear and ready to receive what is happening now in the moment without the burden of your judgment and your preconceived ideas. And when you do this, you allow for the maximum amount of learning 
the maximum amount of observation, the maximum amount of sensing, sensory input, and you want to leave yourself open to for for whatever may come. So leave yourself open for a new solution, a new understanding, an epiphany, to learn something you didn't know before, to sense something you didn't realize was happening before. And this applies to martial arts and it applies to life. You know, the person who is the most open and aware, the notion of having an empty cup is the notion of of being aware in the moment of as much of what is happening as you can be and not putting your judgment on it to say this is good and this is bad. It's just what is coming in and I get to decide in every moment what it has for me, what information there is, what I think is happening, what I can learn. And so it's a very important step because, and I say this in the book, I say, if, if this is is like the only thing that you work on for a really long time, which is to let go of your judgment in every instance that you can in your life and to meet each instance of your life with openness and awareness. I mean, that's huge. It's huge. And it allows for perception, new perceptions. And one way your father emptied the cup is he had a he had meditation practices that he that he yes. did. What did that look yes. like? What did his your father's meditation practice look like? Yeah. So my father, thank you. I, I knew there was another part to the question. <laughs> my father did meditate like traditionally sometimes. We actually have a picture of him sitting cross-legged, hands in his in his lap, eyes closed, meditating. But my father was such a kinetic human being. He was just moving all the time. And so a lot of times he would meditate in movement as well. So he liked to get up in the morning and go for a jog, a jog a, a couple of miles, sometimes, you know, two, three, four, five, six miles. And he loved that as quiet meditation time, time to let the mind be loose. So there are a lot of different ways to meditate. And I'm sure there are meditation teachers who who would say, no, this is what meditation is, or no, this is how you're supposed to do it and all that. But for me, I do advocate for meditation because it, it gives you that space in your mind to loosen it, for it to become fluid, for it to empty out of all of the thoughts and feelings and things that are going on in there all the time. And so my father would employ meditation all the time. Sometimes he would just walk around the backyard quietly, allowing his mind to contemplate deeply whatever his his sense was and to create that opening within and as you said earlier your your father's philosophy wasn't dogmatic and he had this like there's this pivotal moment early on in his career where this like it it came to like he had to is like dogmatism versus bruce lee and uh, <laughs> what was going on is your father was starting some uh martial arts studios in california but the guys in chinatown the traditionalist and this was in San Francisco. They didn't like it because they were like, they weren't, you're not doing it the way you're supposed to do it. And basically there was this showdown. Can you walk us through the showdown and how did that influence the rest of your father's career and how he thought about his philosophy? Yeah, this was a huge pivotal moment for him. And so he had opened one school in Seattle and then he had decided to move to Oakland to open a second school with his friend James Lee. And he went down there and opened his school, which was open to anyone and everyone, which back in the day was was not done. You didn't teach Chinese Gong Fu to non-Chinese. Certainly there were there were some schools that would let a person in here or there, but it was definitely 
the exception and not the rule. And my father was interested in sharing his love of Chinese Kung Fu with whomever had a sincere desire to, to learn it. So he opened this, this school and, and had a whole bunch of people. And then he started changing some of the traditional Wing Chun that, that he had come up learning in Hong Kong to be in his, you know, experimenting with what was more effective and slightly changing some of the traditional moves. And he would go around and, and do demonstrations and call people up on stage and tell them why their moves weren't effective and why it was better to do it this way. And this really angered, as you mentioned, the traditionalists who were like, who is this young upstart telling us that, you know, hundreds of years of, of traditional Chinese Kung Fu is incorrect and teaching women and people of all different backgrounds and and races and you know what have you and and making this big stir and they really really didn't like it and so they issued a challenge to him and they found their best fighter and they issued a challenge and they said we're going to challenge you to a fight and if you lose you have to stop teaching and if you win then you can go, you can go on teaching and so my father was like incensed and was like, great, fine, let's do it. And so they came to his school in Oakland. This is the very end of 1964. My mom was like eight months pregnant with my brother and she was there along with James Lee, who is no longer alive. And they came in and they said, we're going to have this fight. And they started laying out all these rules. There's no this, there's no that. And my father said, no, 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 no. Um, if we're fighting for something as meaningful as this, there's not going to be rules. We're going to fight all out. And so they conferred and they were like, oh, okay, all right, great. No rules. Just until someone gives up or someone's knocked out. And so they started and my dad just came out swinging and the fight lasted about three minutes. My father won. The other guy gave up and, and that was that. And they left. And then I, I always remember my mom telling me this story. And she said, you know, I, I came outside to, to see your dad. And he was sitting on the curb with his head in his hands. And he seemed really upset. And I said, what's, what's the matter? You just won. Aren't you happy? And he said, the fight didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. And because there were no rules and, and because the fight, like, devolved immediately, as soon as the other guy found out that he was potentially outpaced, he turned and started running around the room. And my dad had to chase him and do all these things that you wouldn't do in a, in a traditional pairing off. And he was winded and it took him a lot longer to grab hold of him and get him down. And he was really disappointed with his performance, even though he had won. And you know, I talk about his ability to really assess himself and to really look at his pain points and his disappointments and say, so what can I do to change this? And it's from this moment where essentially Jeet Kune Do was born, his martial art that he developed, and he took an entirely different approach to martial arts and martial arts training out of this. And he went so far actually as to ask his friend George Lee, who was a metal worker, to fabricate for him a miniature headstone. And on the headstone, he wrote the phrase, in memory of a once fluid man crammed and distorted by the classical mess. And uh, I still have that headstone. And um, it was his sort of reminder, this symbol that he created to remind himself to die to his, all his crammed, distorted mess that he had gotten himself into and just figure out a way to return to fluidity. That was the other thing that impressed me about your father. And again, he, it's this idea of taking 
the the abstract and making it concrete. And you talk about this, like mm-hmm. this idea of, you know, he made this gravestone as a, as a concrete manifestation of this idea or this experience he had. But he did this with other stuff, like he made other symbols throughout his life, sort of moral reminders or philosophical reminders that were concrete. Any other ones that stand out to you? Sure. Actually, out of that same encounter, he had these plaques created, which he called the stages of cultivation. And there were these four plaques that that talked about sort of the different levels that you would need to move through and attain in order to become whole as a martial artist or as a human being. And they start with partiality, move to fluidity, and then emptiness. And then the final plaque was the plaque that he created to represent himself as, as his philosophy and his whole representation. And he had his friend George Lee make those as well. And he designed them up and drew them and he had them hanging in his school. And he also had created this symbol, which was a yin-yang symbol with arrows around it, showing the ever fluid interplay of energies. And then around that, he created the phrase, which I mentioned earlier, using no way as way, having no limitation as limitation. And he had that written in Chinese characters around the yin-yang symbol. And he had that made into a medallion that he wore around his neck. And at another point, he, he wrote an inspirational phrase on a business card and, and had a stand made for it when he needed some extra inspiration during that time of his life. So he was, he was constantly creating these little symbols to, re, to remind him to stay on the path. He, he carried also like affirmations in his pocket that he would say to himself out loud. So he was a very, he had tools, <laughs> right. he had serious tools. <laughs> and another tool that he used, and the reason we know like, like the stuff that we've been talking about, is he, he journaled. He was an obsessive journal. Yeah. He wrote tons and tons. What was his journaling practice like? Did he, did he have a particular way he journaled or was it more just like whatever thoughts he had, he just sort of stream of conscious, put it down? Yeah. So he didn't have a journal as we think of it today. Like he didn't, it's not all in one or several bound books. He was a little too kinetic, I think for that. Like he, he would write stuff down whenever he, wherever he was, He did sometimes carry little notebooks with him, but just to be able to capture anything he was thinking of at the time, since they didn't have smartphones back then. And, but he would write on, you know, all manner of pieces of paper and just keep them. He, he was really into, he had stationery created for himself as well, which was something that was easy to do in, in Hong Kong. And he wrote in in a number of different ways. So, so he wrote inspirationally, right? Like, I have a thought, I'm going to jot it down. He also, he wrote very methodically as well in a sense that he created a, he he would, if he had an idea that he was working, he would work on it on the page. And there would be multiple drafts oftentimes of letters or essays or ideas that he was masticating and and trying to work his way through. And I'm really grateful that that we have all of all of these things so that we can not only see the finished product but see his process as well. And you know one of the things that I remark about his writings which as I was going through them became really prevalent to me is that there're no like negative writings and there's no place where he's complaining or you know raging on the page if you will about his problems or his frustrations if he did that he he didn't keep that stuff and i point this out because i know as a as a as a young girl who got into journal writing at a pretty young age that was a lot of the first many years of my journaling was just like, so-and-so is really annoying me and I'm so upset about this and da-da-da. He journaled very constructively. He was problem-solving and trying to express himself. And I just found that to be so amazing when I realized that. And I thought, 
wow, first of all, I'm so grateful to to have this, but but also this is actually something meaningful to me because when I look back on those old journals of mine, of me sort of like complaining and groaning about this, that, and the other, there's not a lot of useful information there for me anymore because now I'm I'm a different person than I was then. And what I see is me prolonging my suffering by, by concretizing it on the page. So I think that this is a really interesting practice, which is if you need to rage on the page, do it, but then throw it away and then start really using your analytical mind and your soul and your emotional body to seek your solution. Be constructive with your journal writing. Yeah. 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 One of the stories you you talk about that really hit home with me was your father, early on in his career, he suffered, it was just about to take off basically here in the United States. And he suffered a, a, a back injury. He was lifting weights, doing a good morning, which is not it's a, it's a it can be a dangerous exercise because yeah. of the way the mechanics of it uh, but he injured his back and it put him out of commission for a year and i think most people would have fallen into a funk been depressed but like you said your you know your father did feel those but then he always responded positively with constructive action so how did your father respond to this setback and what have you taken away from that yeah you know i think that this is a similar moment to the one we were discussing earlier, which it was a different kind of pain. He was in a lot of physical pain. He had injured his fourth sacral nerve and damaged it really badly to the point where he was told he would never do martial arts again and that he may never walk easily again. And as you say, you know, the thing about my father is he definitely felt his feelings. He didn't, he didn't just like, ignore that. And he was upset and depressed for a minute. But then I think the thing that's important is once you know that that that's how you feel and and you've expressed those feelings and and I think back to me being in so much pain over my brother's death. And I just didn't I just hadn't worked up any tools for myself. Where my father differed was he had tools. And so for him in that moment, it was like, okay, this is what has happened. Now what? And so he didn't know, right, if he was going to be able to work himself back into any kind of health, but he was going to see if he could. And so in this library of books of his that I have are many books about anatomy about back pain, how to li- how to you know exercise your back, books about kinesiology, all sorts of things on how to you know sort through for himself what was going on with the problem and and how he could deal with it and try to construct some sort of recovery for himself. In addition to that, because he was bedridden for a number of months he was going to make use of his time. So it's actually during this time that we have so many of his writings that on martial arts, he started working on these, we have seven volumes of this, his writings on martial arts called um, commentary, my commentary on the martial way. And he also read a number of self-help books about positive attitude, about, you know, positive thinking and practices. And he, one of the things which I mentioned earlier that he did was he wrote the words walk on, on the back of one of his business cards. And he had a little stand made for it and he put it where he could see it from his bed. And it was his reminder to just keep moving forward, just just keep spending each day using his time, seeking his cure, figuring out what he was going to be able to do, and then writing, writing, writing. And he wrote so many philosophical essays and thoughts, creative ideas, as well as technical writings on martial arts during that time. And 
if it hadn't been for that time, we would not have that. And so I think the important thing here is that he, he was like, you know, here's the thing, I'm alive. And as long as I'm alive, then I'm going to, I might as well be working towards something. And I think that was really his attitude, which was, okay, if I'm going to be stuck in this bed, then I'm going to do what I can from this bed. And I'm going to attempt to see if I can also figure out how to make my body stronger as well, which as we know, he ultimately did. The other thing I had to keep reminding myself as I was reading the book, because all these insights are just like, wow, I mean, he's, you know, he's probably in his 40s, 50s when he wrote. You, you always forget your father died when he was 32 years old. Totally. I think about myself at 32 and I'm like, man, you are a mess. Right. <laughs> what did you know at 32? I mean, I knew some things, but he was just this force of nature in terms of, as we mentioned, like putting things into action. And as a kid, his nickname was Mo Sitin, which means never sit still. And that was really his, his thing was that he just, he just was this kinetic ball of energy. And so he was going to do, 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 do. And so when I say like, oh yeah, my dad was was an action hero, I mean it in the broadest sense of meaning, not just films, you know, like he was a man of action. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I finally came around to being able to express what I expressed in this book in, at, you know, in my fifties. <laughs> so, but I also say to people, you know, that's the gift of a long life. I, I got the opportunity to live my life long enough to get there. Right. Well, Shannon, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Thank you. Yes. Well, you can go to brucelee.com to check out all things Bruce Lee. We, we do share a lot of his philosophy through our social media as well, which is at Bruce Lee. There's also the Bruce Lee podcast, which is an applied philosophy podcast. So if you want to learn more about his philosophy and listen to us discuss it and break it down, because there's much, much, much more to his philosophy than the be water um, aspect of it as well. You can listen to the Bruce Lee podcast. And I also have my own social at, at the real Shannon Lee. And, you know, I, I just want to say quickly that the reason that I got into looking after my father's legacy is because of the philosophy, because of that dark moment in my 20s where the philosophy changed the course of my life and helped me to heal. And I felt like, you know, my my father's legacy doesn't really need any help from me in the sense that he himself is a discovery that people will continue to love and admire all on its own. But I wanted people to know this side of him. And I think from reading the book, you can really get the sense that he wasn't just an armchair philosopher. He was a really educated, deeply contemplative man who was really a philosopher at his heart. Well, Shannon, thanks so much for time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Shannon Lee. She is the daughter of the late Bruce Lee and the author of the book, Be Water, My Friend, The Teachings of Bruce Lee. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about the work they're doing with Bruce Lee at brucelee.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash philosophy, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of. It. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.